This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brown. The images and stories of migrant families being separated by the United States government set off a global conversation about immigration, borders, and justice. If the political philosophy of liberalism is based on liberty and equality, then the events of the past few months have challenged the very core of liberal democratic states. My guest today is Bruce Collette. He researches migration and public schooling, with a special interest in migration, religion, and schooling in democratic states. He's thinking through what we might call liberal multiculturalism, as well as issues around security. For some students, religion is a very important part of their life. It's part of it's part of their identity, and uh, in some cases, it's accompanied them on on their journey here. It's a part of it's part of their life story, and so I, I think that schooling can can be a fuller and more accurate experience for them by by recognizing these things. Bruce Collette is an associate professor in educational foundation and inquiry at the Bowling Green State University in Ohio. He is the author of Migration, Religion, and Schooling Within Liberal Democratic States, which was published earlier this year, and editor of the journal Diaspora, Indigenous, and Minority Education. Bruce Collette, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Can you describe the state of migration around the world today? Yes. Well, as you know, uh, we are in a in a period of, of what seems to be uh, almost unprecedented global migration. Um, as of last year, 2017, about 3.4% of the world's population were actually international migrants. That's about 258 million people. So that's a heck of a lot of people. You know, we have seen, of course, uh, massive migration before in the post-World War II period. Um, but uh, a lot of observers, in fact, are, are drawing a comparison between the, the post-World War II period and the present period of the uh, exodus from uh, Syria and uh, Maghreb region. So uh, the, certainly a, a lot of people are on the move. We can certainly talk about the you know, differentiating between immigrants, you know, voluntary migrants, and forced migrants or refugees because they, they do to go to different parts of the world. I, I might add, uh, just because it's, it's so central to the, to the book, there's an overall pattern of movement from the global south to the global north when we think about um, global south and north in, in, in development terms. And if you juxtapose that with a kind of like a, a, a world map of religiosity, you'll find that um, the global south tends to be uh, more religious than the global north. And in fact, the, uh, the, the Pew Research Center um, a few years back did a very interesting study called Faith on the Move. And they found that about 91% of our international migrants are in fact religiously affiliated. So, so global migration is, um, it's there, it's intense, um, but it's, it's also fairly religious. And that certainly was um, part of the background of, uh, of a motivating factor for, for writing the book. And so what happens when this heavily religious group of people from the global south migrate either by by force or by free will migrate to the global north, which, as you're saying, is more or is less religious, maybe more secular in a way. Um, you know, what actually happens in, inside some of these 
um, these countries in the global north? Well, uh, I, I guess I'd have to ask you what you mean by what happens. <laughs> um, I think we're, we're experiencing, I mean, I'll, I'll probably keep most of my thoughts to, to the book itself, which really concerns public schooling, because there, there's so many different spheres of society that you could look at in terms of, of what's, what's going on, what happens. And I, I want to add a, a couple of important qualifiers here. I mean, you know, we're saying broadly that most of our migrants are coming from, from the global south. Uh, that's those are that's in broad brushstroke terms. Of course, we have we have mig migrants from the global north as well, and and um, not all of them are highly religious. You know, uh, uh, China, for example, is the is the one of the top five sending countries to to the U.S., but only about seven percent of the Chinese population actually feel religious or you know would report any sense of religiosity. So we I do want to qualify those things, but in terms of in terms of schooling. What happens is uh, <laughs> it really varies from country to country. There are some schools that are, are well-versed and very um, well-practiced in welcoming new, new migrants, immigrants and refugees, and they've, they've gotten to know the terrain pretty well, and they've learned how to uh, recognize and accommodate uh, various faith traditions. That is amongst their their children who happen to be religious at all. You know, I'm not assuming that, that uh, you know, uh, migrant children necessarily are religious, uh, but for those who are, uh, some are, are, have gotten it down pretty well and, and they have, I think, uh, pretty um, well-developed policies of recognition and, and accommodation. Others, not so much. Others are, are, are really scrambling and trying to figure out how to accommodate, how to recognize, or if they want to recognize or what to, to what degree shall they recognize and accommodate? So those are all questions that kind of inform this question about what happens, you know, what happens at the school level. So you've been actually looking at these migration patterns uh, and, and the issue of migration uh, inside liberal democratic states. What do you mean by a liberal democratic state? I think of a, a liberal democratic state as basically a state that has a representative democracy. It has elected representatives. It's defined by certain constitutionally provided rights and freedoms, such as due process, privacy, property, um, equality before the law, uh, freedoms of speech, freedom of assembly, and very importantly, I think for this work, uh, freedom of religion, particularly free exercise. And then also uh, freedom from establishment of religion. That is that they're free to practice, but they're also free to go to places like public schools without having a kind of a state religion <laughs> enforced upon them. But there's... Uh, I. I if we get into the questions about secularism, there are, there are variations. There's there's degrees regarding these matters, like like uh, like to what degree they accommodate religious students, or to what degree they recognize them. So there's not just one one answer for that. But that's that's basically how I'm understanding liberal democratic state. It so happens in this book that I I, I pretty much only write about Western democracies. So I uh, and the reason why I do that is is because I'm focusing on on. Uh, immigrant receiving societies, because there there are some democracies, in, of course, in the world that, that aren't really large um, immigrant receiving societies. So yeah, so there are, uh, uh, you know, I had to I had to kind of limit my the range of, of my study in that way. So what are these different degrees that you have identified in terms of liberal democratic states receiving immigrants? and the way in which they accommodate this, um, the religious freedom inside schools. So, you know, what would be an extreme case of, on, or maybe either extreme, of, of, of really embracing 
uh, religious diversity inside schools without mandating a national religion. But then on the other extreme, countries that don't really allow religious practice inside institutions like schools. There are multiple secularisms. You know, there's, there's not just one secularism. There's many ways in which different countries are taking up or democracies are taking up uh, secularism. And I think that the very commonly used example on one end is, is France with its, what can we say, rather, rather sterile form of secularism or kind of hard secularism. France, as uh, many of our, your listeners may, may know, uh, has a, a policy of, of not allowing any sign of, of religion, uh, religious wear, religious garb, religious symbols, at least outwardly displaying on, on, on clothing. It stems to a 2004 law. That's on one end of the, of, of the spectrum. On the other end, you might have uh, countries like Greece that, that have a, a state church, you know, and, and where it's not uncommon at all for religion to be taught in the schools, and particularly the, the kind of official religion. Uh, it doesn't mean that Greece doesn't have opt-out provisions. You know, it, it does. But those are two, I think those are two pretty good <laughs> extremes. And then we have many countries in the middle. The U.S., I would position as being uh, pretty generous. Uh, I think Canada is, is quite generous, generous meaning that they are much more accommodating and recognizing religious identities of migrant students. But then, you know, uh, even in the case of, of, of the U.S., you have to, U.S. is, is, is a very complex and, and decentralized system. And so it does even come down to state by state, you know, what's going on within particular states, if not what's going on with particular districts. And so uh, we could look at it at that level too. Uh, but generally, that's the, kind of like the broad spectrum. Uh, you've, got, you've got some countries that uh, have a really hard-nosed kind of approach towards secularism. Kind of, you might call it cold or sort of sterile secularism that sees any kind of religious particularism as threatening to national cohesion. And on the other side, you've got states with a long history of a kind of established religion that has worked its way into, the, into, into public schools. And both of these sort of extreme cases, they're both would be considered liberal democratic states. They would fall under the sort of political philosophy of liberalism. Broadly speaking, broadly speaking, if we look at representative democracy, if we looked at a particular rights and freedoms protected by constitutions, in the book, uh, you know, I, I, I discuss countries like Greece, for example, that has in its constitution, you know, freedom of religious conscience and freedom of worship. So, so generally, yes, generally, yes. Um, but again, we're looking at kind of a, a spectrum of, uh, of orientations. So in terms of migrants that are going to these liberal democratic states and attending state institutions like public schooling, why is it important to include religion and religious practice inside these institutions like schooling? Well, that really gets to the heart of, of what this book's all about. The book was really examining policies of, of, of recognizing that your migrant student may be religious in the first place, that there's an important part of their identity, and then to what degree and why and how might you make accommodations for religious practices. It certainly is not a book about bringing religion into the schools. You know, I kind of, I, I want to make that pretty clear. It's not, it's not a defense of teaching in religion, for example, or, or pushing for confessional instruction of any kind. Rather, you know, and this is really drawn out of a lot of my, my personal experience of working with different migrant communities over the years, 
it's about firstly recognizing that that religion often does accompany migration, and it, it provides a um, for one thing a, a kind of like a, a lexicon or, or vocabulary for people to make sense of their of their journey. Uh, that's that that's a very interesting part of what religion does. I think so, socially and psychologically. And secondly, religious institutions play a pretty important role in in resettling uh, peoples. And so I wanted to look at this, this very important facet of, of a migrant's identity and ask, well, what could, what could school policymakers and teachers learn from this? Are there, are there things that we could draw from this that could improve our practice and, and help facilitate uh, integration? And this is assuming that public schools, one of, the, one of the things that public schools do is help facilitate integration. And I, I, I talk about that in the book, you know, um, but I also kind of assume that this is, this is true. I mean, I think public schools are entities of, of, of helping children integrate into the wider society. So that's, um, uh, that's a lot of the impetus behind that. Now there's, there's a, a, a great deal of, uh, of the book that's devoted to this discussion of autonomy, because I, th I think that's re that understandably so, and really quite legally, uh, schools want to protect the autonomy of the children. And uh, inevitably, then a question arises, well, does religion inherently threaten the development of autonomy amongst children? And so uh, perhaps we can talk about that in, in greater detail. So what did you find? I mean, that, that's an excellent, I mean, does religion get in the way of all, uh, autonomy of children? First, maybe we, we need to step back and, and ask ourselves, what do we mean by autonomy uh, to begin with? And then, and then we'll... Yeah, we'll go from there. <laughs> and informally, I think we can just think of autonomy as basically self-governance. You know, you're the author of your own life. Somebody else is not authoring your life. Somebody else is not governing your life in, in a way that, that restricts the range of choices that you can have. Formally, uh, we can define autonomy as a, as a capacity for critical and rational reflection regarding your ethical beliefs, regarding your values, and also this kind of commitment to practice this reflection throughout your life. You know, autonomy doesn't happen at one point in your life and then kind of fade <laughs> later on. To be truly autonomous, I think it's the kind of continual ability to be able to exercise this. And the question of whether of the compatibility of religion and autonomy, what I found was that is that religion is, is neither necessary nor sufficient for realizing autonomy. We don't need to be religious to become autonomous. But at the same time, religion is not incompatible with becoming autonomous. And one of the uh, areas that, I, that was, I, I'm quite interested in here is, is relationship between, between something like, like the culture that one's born into or the religious tradition that one's born into and how those cultures or traditions provide at least an initial frame of reference for making choices. And here I pick up on the uh, political philosopher Will Kimlicka's work, uh, particularly in relationship to this connection between freedom and, and, and culture. And Kimlicka writes particularly about culture here, that you know, when we, one of the ways in which we, we know that we're free is that we, we make free choices, when we have a wide variety of choices to, to, to choose from. And so it involves kind of making these choices amongst various options. And what Kim Licker writes or proposes is that cultural contexts often provide individuals with meaningful choice options. In other words, we know of our meaningful choices be, uh, in large part because our, because our, our cultures tell us so, vis-a-vis our, -vis our cultural memberships. So think of things like, like wedding ceremonies or funeral practices. You know, when I, when I got married, 
it never really uh, seriously, seriously occurred to me that I, I, I should ask my parents permission. You know, I, I kind of made the choice on my own and I went to my parents and said, well, hey, guess what? Um, but there's, there's some societies, there's, there's some cultures rather, where that is a very important choice option. You know, and I, I think it could extend this to a number of different kinds of practices uh, in, in one's life. So, so for Kimlicka, cultures have this kind of instrumental value in that they actually kind of are part of, of facilitating the liberty of individuals, you know, not divorced from it. And this, in, in his work, this provides a, a sort of rational, uh, rationale for, for cultural protection within culturally diverse societies, that if, if you want uh, members of minority groups to be able to exercise their freedoms, then you should provide some protections for their cultures because these are kind of choice contexts. Uh, I, I read into this quite deeply with respect to religion because I, there's some other interesting work going on that's, that, that works from that, that idea, but says, well, isn't this also true for religious systems? Don't also religious systems often provide kind of a, a meaningful range of choices uh, for people? And, and many times we know also that, that religions and, and cultures are quite you know, intimately bound. Um, for example, uh, in the, throughout the 90s, I worked with uh, Tibetan refugees in, in Chicago, um, and it was impossible to, to understand Tibetan culture without understanding Tibetan Buddhism. Just, just impossible. You know, you could, and uh, uh, later, when I was doing my doctoral work, about a decade later, I worked with Somali refugees in the, in the greater Toronto area in Canada. And pretty much the same thing could be said for most, about 99.9% .9 of Somalis are Muslim. And it's, and it's really hard to understand Somali society and Somali culture outside of, outside of Islam. They're so, they're so interconnected. So, so um, I think there's a very reasonable um, argument or, or, or defensible way of, of looking at the also connections between individual freedom and, and the in the way in which one's uh, raised religiously. Now, there's there's another side to this, of course, which is retaining autonomy. You know, autonomy means critical uh, uh, reflection on on one's choices. And so, a question may come up: Well, then, is culture or religion are they determinative? Are are they are they are you destined to become you know this kind of person because you're raised in this kind of culture? And I think for for theorists like Wilkin Licka or another person I'm really interested in, Eric Anderson, who writes a lot about religion and, and autonomy. They also are very quick to say, well, no, individuals also must always be able to step back and observe, step back and revise, step back and critically examine. It, it does. I mean, and it, it also makes me think about the connection between school and the freedom of choice and of culture and of autonomy even, because, I mean... In many ways, you know, you might say that, yes, schooling can sort of create the conditions under which one can learn how to be autonomous, how to have the freedom of choice. But in many ways, schooling also sort of limits the autonomy. It's very much a um, prescribed behavior that one has to learn how to, to behave through schooling, right? So, I mean, there's also a sort of the the opposite of autonomy being instilled in students through school. I think that's, that's, a, that's a very valid point. It's a very good point about that. And in fact, in, in uh, a section of the book where I write about, about non-confessional instruction about religion, and a, a very important thread within this is, is cultivating a student's critical kind of 
discourse and thoughts and discussion about religious systems, their own included. And I think it's, that's a very important component that should ideally, you know, weave its way throughout the curriculum, always maintaining this capacity. But you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, certainly uh, schools, we talk about the hidden curriculum a lot and about how children are inducted <laughs> or socialized into, into systems of obedience, perhaps, or passive behaviors, like I think you're suggesting. So, yes, I recognize that. So in, in terms of the, you know, my, migration um, in some of these liberal democratic states, religion, in a way, you, in a way you're saying that religion is, uh, helps integrate migrants into society. Um, but a lot of those societies in these liberal democratic states are secular. So how does this actually happen? How does, you know, how does schooling actually, uh, schooling and religion actually help migrants integrate into society? Secularism, for one thing, does not necessarily prohibit schools from recognizing and accommodating students who happen to be religious. It's not, it's not need not be taken up as a, a wall. Now, we were discussing France before, which has a particular approach to secularism, which I, th I think is a bit more of like, uh, what we call it, like a kind of sterile secularism that does see religious particularism as, as threatening um, to a student's development of, of autonomy and maybe to a, a larger civic identity. And that's a that's a rather extreme case, I think. Uh, there's not a lot of other countries, in, at least to, that I've looked at. I look at some 20 countries in the book that, that take on that, that particular model. Other countries, like, for example, the states, certainly our public schools are, are secular, but I think we enjoy something of more of a, of a full secularism. That is, you know, we're, we're guided by, by the, the First Amendment, the, our Constitution, you know, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And so we have the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause as sort of our, our guiding legal principles that pretty much guide our school policies on, on religion. But it doesn't mean that religion is not present in the schools. You know, so for, ex for example, it's, it's, it's perfectly legal for schools in the United States to provide a, a space, well, let me put it differently. It's perfectly legal for students to use a space within schools to conduct, to have pri private prayer. Schools can't call it a prayer space. Uh, it's a common use room, but children could certainly go there to, to privately pray. You know, if you look, if you look into the, how these policies are worded, they're worded very carefully uh, to avoid any kind of uh, violation of establishment. So, you know, a school official can't condone that practice, they can't support it in any way. Students, it's are this is thought to be a private activity, not a not a group activity. Um, it's open to any faith tradition, but you know that certainly can happen. And I and I think that that's important that we allow it to happen. Now, that's my position in in the, in the book because again, for some students, religion is a very important part of their life. It's part of part of their identity, and uh, in some cases, it's accompanied them. On, on their journey here. It's a part of, it's part of their life story. And so I, I think that schooling can, can be a fuller and more accurate <laughs> experience for them by, by recognizing these things. I think the same could go for, for dress codes too. By and large, the US is, is, is pretty good. Uh, when I say good, I mean, I mean they recognize uh, and accommodate in this way the religious identities of their students. And so you, you can wear a, a cross or a yarmulke or hijab or whatever. And you shouldn't be, you know, turned away from, from doing so. 
uh, we've had isolated incidents incidents in the, in the in the U.S. where this has happened, and but but by and large, I I think we're we're pretty good on that score. So I guess to to answer your question, secularism need not be um, taken up as a as a barrier towards um, recognizing the religious identities of students in schools. Does the religion of migrants, the religious practices of migrants, and the, the value that religion has in the integration of migrants into societies of liberal democratic states, does that challenge sort of the idea of liberalism in any way? Some contexts take this up as being a private matter, that your religious identity is a private matter. You know, you, you have freedom of worship, freedom of, of religious expression, but this is really not something that you would wear in your shirt sleeve, so to speak, in, in a public place like a public school. That, I think, traces its way back to a kind of collective imagination of, of what a citizen looks like, who is a citizen supposed to be. And that's a kind of that's a particular imagination of the citizen that has that has a public life, a public identity, and a private identity, a pub, uh, private religious practice. There's other countries that 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 take up a more diverse and may I say multicultural imagination of what their national citizenship looks like. Canada is a perfect example of this. I mean, Canada has within its constitution, <laughs> Canada officially claims itself itself as a multicultural state. It imagined itself or tries to imagine itself as as a multicultural citizenship. That's the imagination of the citizen. So there's different ways that, that states take this up, but at least amongst the, the, the 20 uh, democratic states that I look at, all of them have provisions for free exercise. So you've looked at all these different states. What would you say some of the best practice practices of integration in schools actually look like? Like, what would some of these best practices be that you've, that you've uncovered? So this question about, about best practices, I look at, at four, four kinds of practices. You know, there's, there's many kinds of practices. You could look at schools and, and, and try to get a sense of um, what might constitute sort of an ideal policy environment. We have to always be thinking about context. You know, what works in one context might not work the best in another. But I, you know, I look at dress codes at spaces that uh, prayer might be might occur within. I look at, at religious holiday calendars. I look at uh, non-confessional instruction about religion. That is kind of like a, for example, a, a, a class about world religions or religion within literature kind of class. So non-confessional instruction about religion. I think that I think good practices. Let me put it that way, are ones that find a, a healthy balance between recognizing a, a student's or an individual's um, inherited perhaps religious tradition and the way that they they meaningfully identify sort of the narrative they, they have about themselves at that point in time with the providing opportunities for them to to look at themselves in other words to see themselves from a distance somewhat and, and to, to uh, and maybe even an opportunity to to, to step back and and compare their their belief system with that of another, or perhaps an atheist, someone who doesn't doesn't embrace the religious system at all. I think that that balance is 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 very important for for state or public schools to maintain. What that balance looks like, though, in different countries, you know, it, it really is context dependent. I'm, I I I really would be hesitant to say, well, there's 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 this sort of one 
blanket set of policies or practices about prayer and religious holidays or non-confessional instruction that, that we should implement you know, across the board. There's just, there's just too, much, um, too much variation to consider. It, it seems like the recently sort of globally that there is an, an anti-immigrant discourse that is on the rise. I mean, Donald Trump's wall in America, his detention centers where he, that are being filled with children who have been separated from their parents, um, to Italy and Hungary and Poland, to Australia's policy of turning back the boats, um, from a few years ago. So it seems like there is this rise of anti-immigrant discourse and even policies in some countries. Do you, do you think this will affect the integration policies of and the integration practices of some liberal democratic states when it comes to immigrants uh, integrating through schools and with religious identifications? Uh, invariably, yes. <laughs> I think the answer to that question is yes. But I would, I would choose to look at this actually from the local level, beginning at the local level, and then moving our way up, as opposed to the opposite. And in that case, you, it's, uh, again, would be hesitant to say it's, uh, that these kind of securitization of migration, this phenomenon of securitizing migration, works the same way in each country context, each regional context, each district context, and with with all populations the same. That that's just that's too much to say. So I in the in the book, I do provide a uh, an account of a study I did with my my colleague He Young Bang that measures the school policies and practices of twenty Western democracies, with particular attention to recognition and accommodation amongst migrant religious students. And I, I only bring that up because, because I think those, those sort of clusters that we come up with in this book, and I'll, I'll name them real quickly, maybe provide some inroads into answering your question here. So we found, we found the following clusters. Uh, some, some clusters of countries, and we looked at some 20 countries, and I'll mention them along the way. Some are quite generous, shall we say, in terms of accommodation and recognition. So countries like Australia, uh, Canada, Sweden, we rank pretty. We found in our measurement of these policies pretty high. So in some cases, like Canada, we could in fact see as a reaction to the secured these these, these heavy-handed securitization policies and kind of like this push of populist nationalism and whatnot. We might actually see a rebound of pushing back uh, of school policies as as protecting children from these forces or or taking a stand. In other cases, though, unfortunately, you might see some restricting uh, or, or cutting back on, on policies of, of, of recognition or accommodation. Uh, take, for example, the U.S. Could it be that over time, places like you know, Arizona or Texas, you may see some restricted use of common space for prayer because of, um, I'll just put it plainly, because of, of, of a fear of Muslim students or uh, um, uh, not wanting to really extend accommodations in that way. But are you going to see the same kinds of um, uh, practices in places like Illinois or New York? Uh, so you have to, you, I think you have to go to the very local level and see how are these, how are these in some ways, globalizing forces impacting day-to-day -day practices at, at very local levels. And I, think, I think you'll find some variations, some that are reflective of these forces in a way, 
uh, unfortunately, but some that may very well push back. Is there any evidence to, to suggest that the successful integration of, of religious migrant students inside public schools help or better help the families of those students migrate into society sort of in generally? Say, for example, Vietnamese Buddhist immigrants, their children, second generation, at least initially, uh, maintain their Buddhist practice or carry on with this Buddhist worldview, just as an example. That, that coherence, it serves as a, as a kind of buffer against the trauma of, of migration. It, it provides a kind of, uh, in some ways, a sort of safety zone, uh, a way of, of warding off a lot of the um, challenges that that migration bring. And there have been some very good studies on, on, on examining how this, how this actually gives children a sense of self-confidence in, in schools uh, through this kind of cultural coherence. And also on the institutional side, and I actually saw this myself I, and when I was working with, with Iraqi refugees in the greater Detroit area, that the church was was very much involved in in the community not only in terms of like they often would churches will do this they'll, they'll be kind of like a a, a, a place for uh, for networking uh, for the generation of, of social capital uh, social capital that might actually lead to a job lead you know that that helps to preserve the, the intactness of a, of a family unit and help them survive uh, but also they they also can often sponsor youth programs um, I worked for, for a number of years, for example, with, with a person who was doing counseling with, with children who had been severely affected by the war in Iraq. And she was doing trauma therapy, but it, but it was also using a, in this case, of what they were Chaldean Catholics, and so they're using a, a religious lexicon um, because, because the kids could understand that vocabulary. And so, yeah, so uh, religiosity can, in, in many ways can, can can help buffer and serve as a kind of like a cushion against the, the traumas of, of, of exile. It's a very fascinating and obviously timely topic to be looking at sort of around the world. Um, so thank you very much, Bruce Collette, for joining Fresh Ed. It was a pleasure to have you on, and, and I look forward to talking to you again for your next book. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Bruce Collette is an associate professor at Bowling Green State University in Ohio. His new book is called Migration, Religion, and Schooling Within Liberal Democratic States. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed is made possible through listener donations. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Yuval Devere, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba. Aggie Hu is Fresh Ed's social media coordinator, and original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Priming. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brim, and I'll be back next week.